Father, we do ask that you would enable us to really understand your word and to receive it and to be changed by it and to become more like Jesus because if we've been here receiving from you. Would you anoint me to that end? Would you anoint us to receive and have your way? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off uh, this morning by telling you a joke. A lot of jokes begin with, there was this guy. So that's one of those kind of jokes. There was this guy who was unemployed, and he's looking for work up in the northwest. And he came across, you know, an area that had a wood shop, and they did a lot of lumber treatment there and so forth. And so he went to the boss of the wood shop and said, I need a job. Is there anything I can do? And he said, well, I only got one opening, and it means cleaning the wood shop. All these wood shavings all over the floor, I need them all cleaned up on a regular basis. So he says, so that's your job. You get to work. And so the boss leaves, and he gets in there, and he starts slipping on the wood shavings, and he's thinking, this is kind of fun. So then he started getting a running start and sliding all the way across the floor of the wood shop. Well, he ended up sliding all the way across, and he slid right into a saw and cut his hand off. This is a joke. <laughs> Hang with me here. The boss comes in and sees this and goes, oh, my goodness. And he gets a plastic bag, puts his hand in a plastic bag, wraps it up, takes him to the hospital with the bag and his hand in it, brings it to the emergency room. And then he leaves them, and the next day he comes back to check on them. And there he is in this hospital room with his hand reattached, and he's doing, like, all kinds of rehabilitation with his hand, moving it. And, and he, the boss says, that, that's amazing. He looked at the doctor and said, that's incredible. And the doctor said, that's just a miracle of modern science. He said, wow. So anyways, he takes the guy back to the wood shop, and he starts working. He says, now be careful in here. There's a lot of saws, okay? Be careful. Now get back to work, and the boss leaves, and he, and he just starts to sweep, and then he's like, gosh, this is just so much fun. So he started sliding all over the floor again. And this time he slid into another saw and cut his leg off. <laughs> so the joke. So the boss comes in there, and he goes, oh, my goodness. And he takes his leg and puts it in a plastic bag and takes him to the emergency room in the hospital. And then he comes back the next day, and sure enough, the leg has been reattached. In fact, he is doing, he's doing jogging laps around the hospital. And he looks at the doctor and says, this is amazing. The doctor said, that's just, you know, another miracle of modern-day science. He's like, oh, wow. So he, he takes him back to the witch house and says, okay, now... I hope you've learned your lesson. You need to be careful in here. There's lots of saws. Now get to work. So the boss leaves, and he starts, you know, really working hard, sweeping. Then he's like, I just got to slide one more time. So he gets real back real far, and he runs, and he slides into another saw and cuts his head off. Well, the boss walks in, and he goes, oh, my goodness. And he gets a plastic bag, puts his head in the plastic bag, wraps it up, and takes his body, and goes to the emergency room. Leaves it all and goes back to work. And the next day, he comes to check on him. He goes up to the doctor and says, so how is he? The doc said, he's dead. Some idiot put his head in a plastic bag. He suffocated to death. Now, you wonder how I'm going to segue from that to something important, don't you? Well, that boss wasn't a very wise leader, and we're going to talk about wise leadership today. 
We are going to continue our series in 1 Timothy. If you remember, Paul is speaking to young Timothy, who's probably about 35 at the time, and he's basically sort of the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul is giving some instruction on how really to lead this church. In the first chapter of 1 Timothy, he really exhorts him to fight for the truth. Stand on the truth. Don't give in to the truth. Fight for it and make sure you pass it on. Then we get to chapter 2, Paul's really trying to guide Timothy in really how to do church, particularly how do you do the public worship meeting? What is the appropriate, uh, how, how are things supposed to function during the, the, the corporate worship time? In chapter 2, when we get to chapter 3, he's going to instruct Timothy how to set up qualified leadership for the church. Now, it's important that we understand a little background about how the church has been led through history. Of course, it starts with the church is led first and foremost by Christ as he's leading the apostles. But after Christ ascends into heaven, the apostles now become the leaders of the church. And the apostles, of course, the church begins to grow and expand. And the apostles begin to appoint elders over every church. These elders are oftentimes called overseers, translated overseers. Sometimes the word is translated for, for overseers, translated bishop in some translations. And these, they were to lead and to shepherd and to teach and to govern and to care for and to safeguard the flock of God, the church of God. Now, some of the passages that teach about the function of New Testament elders, we're going to look at. Let's turn to Acts chapter 20, and the verse will be on the screen. Acts chapter 20, and verse 17. The Apostle Paul sends word for the elders of the church in Ephesus that he wants them to meet him at this port in Miletus because he wants to talk to him because he doesn't believe he's going to see them again. So he has a ship pull into this cove, Miletus. He sends a courier to go get these elders in Ephesus, bring them back so he can say some last important words to them. So let's pick it up. Acts 7, no, 20, verse 17, he says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. We get to verse 28. Here is the heartbeat of what he challenges these elders to do, charges them to do. He says, Be on guard for yourselves, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Another passage that tells us a little bit about really what the task of eldership is, is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Now, this is the apostle Peter in giving instruction for how things are supposed to work in church leadership. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Okay, here's his challenge to him. Shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So these elders were to be qualified according to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 
Chapter 3, we're going to see he actually gives out the qualifications. And also those same qualifications are parallel to those qualifications are in Titus chapter 1, which we'll look at in a few weeks. Now, they were first to prove themselves in the congregation. We'll see that in a verse in a little bit. That they were faithful in little things and God just kept giving them more to do. But they also had to aspire to be elders to the glory of God. In fact, it's interesting, 1 Timothy, the epistle, the letter, 1 Timothy, actually has more instruction on church leadership in the, in the, in the New Testament church than any other epistle we have in our Bibles. And the reason for that probably is because one of the purpose statements of this book is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's see what it says, verse 14 and 15. He says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, verse 15, but in case I am delayed. Remember, Paul's writing to young Timothy. I'm writing these things because I might be delayed. I want you to get this fast as possible. In case I'm delayed, I, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So a big part of how we conduct ourselves in the house of God is by having the proper installation of qualified leaders. So that's what Paul's addressing in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So let's go ahead and jump in there. Verse 1, he says, it is a trustworthy statement. He says that several times. In other words, this, this is really true and important, and this is how it works. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So the first thing I want you to notice that someone who desires to be involved in leadership in a church, to see the people of God properly taken care of and shepherding, someone who aspires to that, that is a good thing. That's not necessarily a bad ambition. So it starts from a human perspective. It starts with some, some, some man has a desire in his heart to serve in that capacity, and that desire is in him. Now, from the divine perspective, the Holy Spirit is the one who puts men in the position of overseer. Now, look at Acts 20, verse 28. Again, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the desire to be an elder is really even, I think it's even that desire is even the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a potential elder. So the office of overseer or elder, he's, he points out right off the bat, is a noble thing. It is a praiseworthy occupation. Now, why is it a noble thing? Well, he also said this already, that the church has been purchased with Christ's own blood. You know what makes us so valuable? Because we were purchased with the blood of Christ. That's what makes the task of someone wanting to shepherd this valuable group of people it makes it such a noble thing because they are shepherding such a valuable thing. The valuable people that have been purchased with the blood of Christ. So it's a noble thing to want to shepherd the most valuable group of people there are on planet Earth. Now Paul's going to move into the actual qualifications now when we get to verse 2. So let's jump into there. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. He says, an overseer then must be above Reproach. Now, this is the overarching qualification. Now, Paul's going to break that down in specifics in just a moment, what that means. 
But he starts off with the overarching qualification. Uh, this candidate for eldership must be a man who is above reproach is with his moral and his spiritual reputation. Now Paul's going to get specific. Verse 2, he says, he must be the husband of one wife. Now the literal translation is a one wife's husband with the one in the emphatic position. In other words, emphasizing the word one in the phrase. Now, of course, this obviously means that an elder cannot have several wives. He cannot be a polygamist. And you think, well, is that a big problem? Some cultures, yes. Some cultures, it's, it's quite a shock to hear this verse because there's polygamy, polygamy in several cultures. So it at least means that for sure. And many have even gone on to interpret this to, to mean that this is, this, he must be a one-woman kind of man. In other words, the elder must be characterized as a one-woman man in the fact that he's not flirtatious or, or promiscuous or involved in questionable relationships with other women other than his wife. And of course, that makes perfect sense. And it at least includes that. And it, it, it actually must mean more than that because think about, think about an, an elder whose wife dies. She dies, and if he remarries another woman, can he still be qualified to be an elder, according to 1 Timothy 3? Of course he can. He can still be this man who is committed to this one woman. Now, our conviction at Grace goes even beyond that. Our conviction at Grace in the last 31 years has been that what Paul is saying here is that he, he's excluding all those guilty of married unfaithfulness. Or better, he's making a general and positive stipulation that a candidate for eldership must be faithful to his one wife. In other words, one who is entirely true and faithful to this one and only wife. Or let me put it this way. He must be a man who, having contracted a monogamous marriage, is faithful to his marriage vows. So then again, this explanation seems to fit the context best. Elders must have this unblemished, unblemished relationship and a reputation with, in the area of sex and marriage. Then he goes on, verse 2, and saying that he must be temperate, that means sober-minded, self-controlled, freedom from all excesses. He must be prudent. He must have sound judgment, sensible thinking, reasonable. He must be respectable. The word literally means orderly. In other words, he's living an orderly life, self-disciplined life in every area of life. That's why he's respectable. He must be hospitable. The root meaning of this word actually indicates the act of loving and receiving and providing for strangers. He must be able to teach. An elder must be able to open his Bible and instruct others from the word. He must not be addicted to wine. Now, it does not say that he must totally abstain from wine. It says that he must not be addicted to it or controlled by it. Now, why is that important? It's important that he's always sober because you never know when he might have to shepherd a situation. So he must always be sober to effectively lead. Verse 3, he, must, he can't be pugnacious. In other words, he cannot be quick-tempered and quarrelsome and actually prone to physical assault on others. And you're thinking, really? Is this a problem? Well, I'm telling you, there's, there's a church I know of on the, on the border of Nepal and Bhutan where a fist fight broke out between the elders during a church meeting. So yes, this is an important qualification for eldership. 
First Timothy 3, verse 3 goes on, but also gentle. He's gracious, reasonable, considerate. He's uncontentious. Again, the word literally means not fighting, but the idea here is quarreling. He's not quarrelsome. So positively stated, he's a peaceful man. Proverbs 20, verse 2, I think of. It says, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will argue or quarrel. Also, verse 3, he's free from the love of money. You know, love of money is like a powerful drug. I mean, love of money can delude someone's judgment, even the best of men. I've seen, especially in different, around the world, I've seen it in so many countries, you put money on the table, and I've seen the best of men make bad decisions. So they must be a man free from the love of money. In fact, chapter 6, six Paul is going to talk more about how the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. So you don't want an elder who has a root of all sorts of evil in him. In fact, Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6 that it's the false teachers who are the ones who are guilty of the love of money. Then he says this in verses 4 and 5, 1 Timothy 3, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So he must be able to lovingly lead his family well and properly administer discipline to his children, because he's going to have to do similar things with his bigger family, the church. So elders are, you know, when they become elders, they're going to have to give time and thought and energy to seeing that the church needs are met, just like a father makes sure his family needs are met. Verse 6, he can't be a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He's talking about pride. Can't be a new convert because it's easy for a new convert to become prideful. By the way, no matter how spiritual a, a young man may be, no matter how zealous, how knowledgeable, how talented, a new convert is not mature. Maturity takes time and experience. I've oftentimes said I think it's a dangerous thing to have a young man pastor a church. Here's the, here's the truth. The truth is, remember, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Remember that. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Both of them are very important. A young man can get truth pretty quick, but it takes a while to get that grace. So a young man can go into a church, and because he's got the truth, he can blow it up. So it's important that the elders are mature, and they're full of grace. Also, a new Christian doesn't really understand yet the craftiness of the enemy. And because of that, he's vulnerable to pride, which is really the most subtle of all temptations and probably the most destructive of all sins, especially in a church situation. Again, I think a congregation's spiritual maturity, in a sense, the ceiling of that spiritual maturity is going to be determined in a big way by the eldership. That's why it's important that that eldership is mature and continuing to mature so the congregation can mature under that leadership. All right, verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You know, non-Christians really watch us maybe more than we think they watch us. If they know you're a Christian in the workplace or in your community, your neighborhood, your place of recreation, they're watching you maybe more than you think. And they would be the first to notice a dichotomy between what you profess and what you practice. They can see the hypocrisy. 
And so their opinion of a Christian leader's character cannot be dismissed. It matters. It's important. It will infect the entire witness of the church. Now, if an elder's is, is defamed or his sin becomes, particularly if his sin becomes public, then there's a sense in which you felt that we fell right into the trap of the devil. The, tra- the trap of the devil is, yes, that sin is public, and yes, I want to take down the reputation of that church. And we've had that happen in our church history. A past elder's sins did become public, and it detrimentally impacted our church's reputation. And that's just what the devil wanted to do. Well, Paul now changes from talking about what an elder ought to be like to what a deacon ought to be like. So our first question ought to be, well, what is a deacon? Well, let's back up again and get a little historical understanding. Something happened early in the church in the book of Acts. In fact, Acts chapter 6. Up to this point, the church has been growing rapidly. We've got the apostles leading. Peter preaches his very first sermon after the Holy Spirit falls in the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people is saved. So the church has really grown into the thousands. So the apostles could no longer effectively shepherd all these people. So what were they going to do? Well, a problem arose when we get to Acts chapter 6. The problem was that the Greek-speaking Hebrew widows were being overlooked in the benevolence ministry, the feeding of food. And so there's a problem. The apostles realized, wait a second, we can't do that too. We can't be doing the praying and the teaching and leading and still and make sure we're, we're serving the tables, the widows, the food. So they said to the congregation, you guys need to pick seven men from among yourselves who can take care of this task. Let's just jump into Acts chapter 6 where he says it. Acts 6 verse 2, they said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. He's talking about the benevolence ministry of these widows. Verse 4, he says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they asked the congregation, choose seven men of good reputation, sound character, to perform, now listen carefully, to perform the task of serving, that word serving, serving tables. That word serve is a Greek word, diakoneo, okay? The cognate noun of that word is diakonos, which is the word we get deacon from. It's the server, the minister. That's the word that we get the word deacon from. The word diakonos does not always have a technical sense of some office or position in a church. It's oftentimes translated in the context as meaning servant or minister. Several passages. Let me give you an example of four passages where the word shows up in three different epistles. Romans chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Phoebe a deacon of the church at Censorea. Censorea. Now, Phoebe, by the way, keep in mind, is a woman. We'll come back to that. Ephesians 6, verse 21, Tychicus, a dear brother and faithful deacon in the Lord. That could be translated minister in the Lord. Epaphras, Colossians 1, 7, is a faithful deacon of Christ on your behalf. That could be deacon, could be minister, servant. Colossians 4, 7, Tychicus is a beloved brother, a faithful deacon, a fellow slave in the Lord. Again, faithful deacon, faithful minister, faithful servant. There's different ways it's translated in our Bibles because it's not always referring to a technical position or office. Now, of these four passages, the only one that really seems to speak about, I mean, the best candidate of the four passages of a technical meaning of deacon actually is Phoebe. 
where it says that she was a deacon in the church. And again, Phoebe is a woman. Now, it's important to notice a couple other things as we, before we hone into 1 Timothy 3. Background's important here. Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we see something interesting happening here. Paul and Barnabas are planting churches. And before they leave a church, they appoint elders there. But there's no reference to them appointing deacons, only elders. Acts 14, verse 23 says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fast, and with fasting, they command, commanded them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Also notice this in the book of Titus, chapter 1. Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders in every church. And here's what it says in Titus 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he follows up with the qualifications for elders in, first, in Titus chapter 1, which parallels 1 Timothy 3. But there's no list and no talk of deacons. And the question is why? Well, it should also be noted that other church terms are used for church leaders besides elders and deacons. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, we read this. It says, those who labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. He's talking about leaders. Here he just calls them those who labor over you and have charge over you. Now, likely he's talking about elders here, but Paul was only in Thessalonica three weeks. Yet apparently before leaving, he appointed leaders there. And again, most likely elders are in view here. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Again, we're not sure what kind of leaders he's talking about, but more than likely he's talking about elders here. But, the, but what's evident here is that the early church did not always have deacons in the technical sense. Of course, in the word, way the word is translated other ways, minister and servant and all that kind of way, of course. But they didn't always have deacons in the technical sense. What is evident, what is clear, is that deacons were added, or servants or ministers were added, when, they, when there was a need, when the need was felt. In other words, when, when, the, when the elders could no longer manage and govern and shepherd the church, then they bring, bring in other leaders under them to accomplish what they want done in the church, other ministers or deacons as they're needed. But what I want you to notice, and our conviction at Grace has been that we see a lot of flexibility here, uh, whether to have deacons or not, and flexibility really, you know, how they, how they work under the eldership. Again, the main thing is, is that the elders can shepherd the congregation, and then we have many others that can do all the other kinds of tasks and leadership things that need to be done under the leadership of the elders. So in light of that, in grace, we've not really, we don't really use the term deacon in the technical sense. And some of the words we've used are, the way the word is translated, minister and servant, we talk about ministers, we talk about staff, we have pastors, staff, directors, coordinators, some are full-time, some are part-time, some are volunteers, but all of them assist under the authority of the eldership to accomplish what the elders want done in the church. That's how we've been functioning at Grace for these 31 years. Now, I want you to notice the qualifications that he's now going to give in 1 Timothy 3 for those serving in those kind of roles. 1 Timothy 3, 8, he says, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued 
or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Verse 9, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Verse 10, and let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Let them first be tested. By the way, that's how leadership in the body of Christ is promoted. Faithful than little, faithful than much. So you're faithful in doing little things, and you're entrusted with bigger things, and you're entrusted with bigger things. That's how you're promoted in the kingdom of God. Faithful in little, faithful in much. And by the way, as I speak about promotion, I want you to think about turning that whole schematic upside down. Because in the kingdom of God, with each promotion, you don't have more people serving you. You serve more people. So keep that in mind. But all of our staff and all of our elders have come up from out of our congregation. They have been those who have been faithful to serve in little things, and we've entrusted them with bigger and bigger things. But I want you to know something else here about the deacon here is that in verse 9 it says that he, he must hold the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Holding the deep truths of the faith gives this idea that they're also assisting the elders in teaching ministry in the church. And of course, we have that as well in our church. Now, I want you to notice the next verse in verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 says, Now, it says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, let's just be fair to the text here. He says, likewise. Paul used likewise back in verse 8 to talk about another category. Likewise argues here, you know, because some, some actually argue that what he's talking about here is the wives of the deacons. But I want to tell you why that doesn't make sense. Why would he mention the wives of the deacons and not have said anything earlier about the wives of the elders? If he's talking about wives... Surely he would have talked about the wives of the elders and the wives of the deacons. But also there's more to that. There's no definite article here. The, the, the Greek word can be translated women or wives. It can be. But there's no definite article. It doesn't say the wives. It just says women. There's no definite article. And there's no possessive. It doesn't say their wives like King James and NIV interpretively translates it. And the reason is, by even some translation sometimes, it's so impacted by what people think it's supposed to say that they're not really straightforward with the text. Many translations are straightforward, like New American Standard, and just leave it be what it says. Women. NIV and King James, and in fact, if you have an NIV or King James, if you notice they put the word there in there, it's in italics. You know why it's in italics? Because it's not in the Greek text. They supplied it for you because they made an interpretive decision for you. And I wish they wouldn't do that. So it says women. And we also know from Phoebe that there were women deaconesses in the church. So in our church here at Grace, we do have women leaders in church ministries and staff. We have assisting elders under their authority doing all kinds of things in our church. I want you to notice that he does point out, he does say something specific about the women not gossiping here. Now, why, why does he do that? Men and women are both susceptible to gossip. But why does he feel like he just wants to give one little extra warning to women here? You know, when men get together, we want to talk about events. 
We want to talk about sports. We want to talk about the news. We want to talk about politics. We want to talk about the war. Men are wired to talk about events. Women are wired. When they get together, they want to talk about people, which is a good thing. They want to talk about how your children, how so-and-so. They want to talk about people. That's how they're wired. It's a good thing. What Paul's saying is, but because that's typically where the conversation is going to be, be more careful that you don't let it slip in to gossip. Then Paul goes back to verse 12 and says, Let deacons be husbands of only one wife, and a good manager of their children and their households, similar to what he said to the elders. Now, looking back, I want to take all these qualifications and put them into just five main areas so we can remember them easy. First of all, the qualifications uh, to himself, the candidate must be self-controlled, mature. That includes the area of drink, money, temper, and tongue. Also, in regard to his family, he must be faithful to his wife and able to discipline his children. In regard to relationships, he must be hospitable and gentle. In regard to outsiders, he must be esteemed, respected. In regard to his faith, he must be strong in his hold on to the truth and be able to help others understand the truth. Now he goes to verse 13 and says, For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now I want you to notice verse 16. It's interesting how he decides to end this chapter. How Paul decides to end the chapter talking about qualifications for leaders in the church. He says this, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul ends this chapter with what was probably one of the first hymns of the church. You know, the first hymn of the church was not Christ the Lord is Risen Today by Charles Wesley or Mighty Fortress by Martin Luther. The first hymn of the early church might just be this one. It's definitely one of the first ones. But how do we know this is a hymn? What we do know is that each line ends in a verb, and each verb ends with the same sound, the sound of they. And each verb of each line is followed by a word, in. So all the lines rhyme. They all end, they end, they end, they end. It's poetic. It's musical. It has form. I mean, it, it starts on the earth. It ends up in heaven. This is a beautiful, beautiful hymn. First line says, he appeared in the flesh. That means that's, that's talking about he's born a baby in Bethlehem. Last line says he's taken up in glory. That's when he lifted off the Mount of Olives and went, ascended to the right hand of God the Father. But because this song is so compact and so much is crammed in these few words, it's easy maybe not to get it all. So I want to take our last few minutes to unpack it a little bit for you. This first hymn, I mean, it, ca it just captures the breathtaking work of Christ from the incarnation to the ascension. I mean, here he is. He came into the world. He was believed on in the world. And he's taken back up out of the world into glory. So it's describing the work of Christ. 
You know, there's a, there's a beautiful scene that's captioned for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 points out that when the Son of God, before he left heaven's throne, said to God the Father something amazing. He says, according to Hebrews 10, verse 5, he says, a body you have prepared for me. I mean, this pre-existent one himself, the Son of God, is about to take on a body, and he says to God the Father, a body you have prepared for me. So the one who had no beginning now has now begins. The one who is limitless now limits himself. The one who's all-powerful, think about this, the one who's all-powerful now becomes weak. Now, how did this happen? How did God become a man? Well, that's a mystery to us. It's a mystery. It's beyond our comprehension. That's why Paul introduces the song with this statement, great indeed we confess is a mystery of godliness. A mystery is something that has to be revealed to us. We don't get it. And he says, I just, he starts right off the bat, I confess the mystery of godliness of God becoming flesh is just, it's just too great. Beyond our ability to totally comprehend. Then the second line of this hymn says, and he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? What it means is Jesus, when he walked the earth, was just a regular guy. He dressed like the other Israelites. He looked like them. He ate like them. He slept like them. Nothing really pointed him out. He didn't have a halo over his head while he walked the earth. There wasn't a neon blinking sign saying, there he is. So what pointed him out? What vindicated him? Well, it says here the Spirit vindicated him. It's probably, it's probably a reference to the baptism of Jesus. When heaven opens up and the Spirit visibly descends upon him like a dove. And God the Father even says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. There's a sense in which the Holy Spirit put his stamp of approval. This is him. Pointing him out. This is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. Here he is. Now, if you ever watch Antiques Roadshow on PBS, you often see the same kind of event. Somebody finds something in their great-grandfather's attic, and they wonder, does this have value? So they bring it in and have an expert look at it, see if it has any value. Like, for example, there was a case of someone who found this harmonica. And they thought, oh, this, this was my great-grandfather's harmonica. This is ancient. And he kept such good care. I wonder if it's worth anything. So he goes to an expert. The expert takes the harmonica and kind of flips it around, looks it over in the light, and then notices a little engraving on it. And the little engraving says that this harmonica was handmade by Professor Higgle Northbottom. Say that 10 times fast. Higgle Northbottom. And, and, and the expert says, this is an original. Do you know who made this? And he's so excited. This is made by Professor Higgle Northbottom. And the guy's like, well, how much is it worth? He says, this is worth $90,000. What happened? That little engraved mark vindicated that harmonica. It pointed out this is authentic. This is the real thing. This is an original. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does at the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit says, there he is. There he is. That's, that's him. That's the one we've been waiting for. Next line says, and he was seen by angels. Now the phrase seen by angels is most likely shorthand in the New Testament for resurrection appearances of Jesus. I remember Jesus dies. He truly dies. He's truly put in that tomb as a dead man. 
And then on the third day, I mean, his, his lifeless body becomes alive. His stiff limbs begin to move. His lungs fill up with air. He comes alive. And the first ones to see him are the angels. They see him. They see that he rose. Then what happens? Well, the next line says, and he was preached in the nations. This probably is a reference to the Great Commission because Jesus stands there in the mount right there in the region of Galilee before he ascends, and he, he gives his apostles and his disciples, he gives them all this Great Commission to go to every nation, tell everybody this good news, and tell everybody how to be a follower of mine. And finally, he says this, and he was believed on or embraced in the world. In other words, and people responded all over the world. And they're responding today all over the world. It starts off by, there's this Pharisee named Saul, Hebrew named Saul, his Greek named Paul. He comes to believe in Christ and he, he takes the gospel. And then there's this Ethiopian eunuch on his way home from his pilgrimage in Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. He encounters Philip and hears the gospel and takes the gospel back to Africa. You have Philip who probably took the gospel, we know, eastward to India. And other, other apostles taking the gospel all over the world. And right now, people, as we're sitting here, people are believing. Right now, from all different kinds of countries right now, people are turning to Christ right now all over the world. And then he goes to this, the next line in this, in this hymn, he says, and he was taken up in glory. Taken up. He now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And from there, he's going to come in glory to collect us, to be with him forever. Now, here's my question as we about close here is, why did Paul stick that hymn right there? Why did he put it right after talking about the qualifications for leaders? Well, I think I know why. I think that leaders pay a high price. They make great sacrifice, and he wants to remind them it's all worth it. So he wants them just to get, now that we talked about it, why don't you get your gaze back on him a minute? I mean, because he served, we want to serve. Because he was generous, we want to be generous. Because he wrapped himself, you know, in a towel and basin and, and went and washed disciples' feet, we want to wash each other's feet. Because he's coming again, we, we want to do church. I tell you, we, all, we do it because of him. He's worth every sacrifice. He's worth every, every cost any leader makes. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I do it. I, I can answer real simply why I do it. I do it because of him. I don't, you know why the elders in this church do it? Because of him. You know why we have all these ministers and servants and, pa and staff and pastors and, and Ventureland teachers and why they all do it? Because of him. Because he's worth it. He's worth it all. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for just your guidance in how you want church done in a way in which it's really the best for everybody to do it your way all the time. You've always got the best plan. We thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for, for elders who love you and love the people here and really want to shepherd the people here. And I thank you for all the different kind of deacons, ministers, servants, leaders, staff, pastors. I just thank you for all those, Lord, in our church who are just saying, yes, Lord, we're glad, we're glad to accomplish what you want done in this church under these elders' leadership, Lord. We thank you. And Lord, we just, uh, we just pray that you, I just, I just pray and thank you, Lord, for a healthy church. I thank you for all the great things you're doing in us and through us here and around the world. I thank you, Lord, because it's, it's a marvelous grace you put on us. And Lord, our prayer is that you take us further. Take us further, Lord, to be able to accomplish even more glory for Christ. 
So strengthen to that end. Continue to raise up godly men and women, Lord, to do all kinds of ministries here at Grace that you want done. Lord, continue to give the, the elders wisdom on, on the direction you want us to go and to lead, Lord, with that kind of wisdom. And Lord, we pray our best days are ahead of us. And Jesus, you get what you deserve through us. Now, before we dismiss, I just want to remind you we have Connection Coffee in this corner here if you have any questions for our staff. If this is your first Sunday, I'd sure love to meet you before you take off. And I'll be up here in this corner where it says welcome. And we're going to have some leader couples down here. Be glad to pray for you, whatever your prayer needs are. So, Father, thank you for today. Would you just dismiss us with your blessing and use us this week to be shatter the darkness people as we shine the light of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Have a great week.